for me last week, Luke 13. And thanks to Ron for filling in for me last week. We were on vacation, and I'd love to tell you that we just laid on the beach all week, but if you've ever been to the beach with kids, you know you don't do a lot of laying around. You haul stuff back and forth, and you make bathroom runs back and forth, and you try to keep kids from getting pulled out by the undertow, and you put sunscreen on, and then you get done with that after a week, and you think, man, I need a vacation. That was tiring. I'm worn out. I, I am glad to tell you, happy to tell you, that I have mastered the art of skimboarding. Yeah, so if you want to see my skimboarding skills, you can get on Facebook and check that out. Falling never looks so good. We had a good time. I gave, uh, I gave Ron and Corey and Hunter several months back when I knew the Sundays that I would be out this summer. I gave them first pick of the parables that we were going to study, and Ron took the one that I really, really wanted to preach. That was the one I didn't want anyone to pick, but Ron picked it, and I'm sure he did a great job. For those of you who listen, parables were work. Get that posted and, and put up for you. As we look at parables, we're working off a pretty simple baseline definition of what a parable is. A parable is a story taken from real life from which a moral or a spiritual truth is drawn. And it's just good to remind ourselves of that definition this morning because the two short parables that we're looking at are a little bit different than most of the parables that we read in the Gospels. In these two short parables, the main characters are the mustard Jesus' parable, 11. And the reason that's unusual is usually people are the main characters in Jesus' parables. And in these two short parables, it's just inanimate objects. And the farmer who plants the mustard seed is not important at all. And the woman who takes the leaven and hides it in the, in the flower is not important at all. And you don't need to try to decode those things or look for any hidden meetings or special sort of secrets in there. The main characters are the mustard seed that grows into a plant and the leaven that the woman put objects into a measure of flour. And Jesus is taking these two familiar objects, maybe not super familiar for all of us, but familiar to the people who were listening to him. And he's using these very familiar, common, everyday things to teach moral or spiritual truths. In particular, as Ron talked about last week, we're going to talk about it this morning, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. This is what some theologians call a kingdom parable. And so let's just start with this idea about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to rule in his reign. His rule in his reign. One of my all-time favorite theologians is a guy named George Ladd. He's a sort of a interesting guy to study in history, a little bit eccentric, has some things in his life that probably looking back on he wouldn't exactly be proud of, but he wrote a whole lot about the kingdom of God. He's like sort of the the leading evangelical scholar on what does Jesus mean when he talks about the kingdom of God, and this is his working definition. The kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, and his authority. And I'm putting this on the screen, and I gave you a little definition in your notes for a reason. When you and I think about a kingdom, we usually think about a place, like a piece of real estate. 
Maybe it has a wall around it or a border around it. Like we think of a physical place you could go. You could be in the kingdom, then you could go over here and you'd be out of the kingdom. And a lot of the Jews had that mentality when Jesus was teaching and preaching. They thought this is where the kingdom is going to be. In this little piece of real estate, this is where it's all going to happen. And Jesus, in a lot of the parables that he's teaching to the crowds and to his disciples, is sort of untying some of that misunderstanding. The kingdom of God is not so much a place that you could go be and then you could leave. The kingdom of God is God's reign and his rule and his sovereignty over the lives of his people. So, for example, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it's on every page. In the Gospel of John, you almost never read about the kingdom of God, but John talks a lot about rule eternal life. That's God reigning in in the lives of his people, ruling in the lives of his people, his sovereignty over the hearts of his people. In any place that God's reign and his rule is recognized, well, that is a place where his kingdom has come. So we're talking about the kingdom. And our friend George Ladd, he points out another important idea that you need to understand about the kingdom. The kingdom, in one sense, is already, quote-unquote, already. In another sense, not yet. It's already Jesus talks about the, so I've given you some verses and you can look the verses up. This is what I'm trying to say. Sometimes Jesus talks about the kingdom and he says, it's come. Like it's here right now. It's standing in front of you. The kingdom of God has come into your presence. And sometimes he says, the kingdom of God is coming. Like it's not here yet. And when you read through the gospels, you want to say, well, which one is it? Has it come now or is it still coming in the future? And the answer is yes. It's come, and it's already here, and that's, but it's not been fully inaugurated in all of its fullness and all of its glory and all of its power, and in that sense, it's still coming. And again, that makes a little bit of sense if you think about John's term for the kingdom, when you think about eternal life. If you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus and you believe that he died for you on the cross, he took your punishment, he took the wrath of God that you deserved, and you believe in that and you trust in that the Bible says you receive eternal life now you don't have to wait till you die to get it you get it and so with eternal you don't have it in the fullest sense now and so with eternal life you say a a Christian has eternal life now we already have it but there's also a sense in which we don't yet have it and it's the same idea with the kingdom of God it's already and it's not yet So all of that leads us to the big idea. It's a pretty simple idea. Despite small beginnings and slow growth, Jesus says that we should expect the kingdom of God to grow steadily. We expect the small beginnings and slow growth. Nevertheless, we expect the kingdom of God to grow steadily. So that's the big idea. Our passage is not long. It's just a few verses. We're going to read it. We're going to pray, and then we'll think about what Jesus is saying to us. Luke 13, verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Well, it's like leaven that a woman took 
and hid it in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we gather together around the word this morning. We inspired and listened to Jesus. We gather to listen to the truth that your spirit inspired in the scriptures. And we just humbly and simply pray this morning that your words would be plain to us, that they would be clear, that we would understand what Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom, that we would see how it applies to our lives, and that we would be changed people, changed in our hearts, changed in our thinking, changed in our lives. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first church that I pastored was outside of Frankfort, Kentucky, North Benson Baptist Church. Uh, The guy that used to lead the singing there got a drone a few weeks back, and he flew his drone over the church and put that picture online. And so that's the church. Uh, It's about five miles outside of Frankfort. And Brooke and I knew we were in for something good when we went and we preached, and they said, yes, we want you to come, and everyone was excited, and they said, don't hire a moving moving company or moving truck. We're going to come get you. And they into our apartment on seminary campus, and they didn't have a U-Haul. They had a horse trailer. They said, we're here. Let's go. Load it up, which, by the way, works really great because U-Hauls are like four feet off the ground, and horse trailers sit really low to the ground, and so it's easy to carry that stuff on. So they moved us out there, and uh, we moved to Devil's Hollow Road, and the church is on Devil's Hollow Road. We were just a little bit closer to town, so we're living on Devil's Hollow Road, and I'll just be honest. For Brooke and I, living where we lived out there in side of Frankfurt, it was like Green Acres to us. It was like you have moved to the farm, you know, get you a little piece of wheat and stick it in your tooth there and tuck your jeans in your pants. I mean, we just felt like we were really living out in the country, out in no man's land. All the people at our church thought we lived in the city because we were way closer to the city than the rest of them. So to us, or excuse me, to them, we were town folk. But to us, who are used to living in a town, in the city, we had really moved to the country. And one thing we learned, the first, we went in October, and we learned it that first fall, and then especially the next spring is, almost everyone, I mean almost everyone in our church grew a garden. It's a lot easier to grow a garden in Kentucky than it is in Odessa. Almost everybody did it. And people did it for food, like people would grow big gardens, like big, huge spreads, plow it up with a tractor, and to us it was like a mini farm, but to them it was a garden. And they would, you know, get enough food that they could eat off of that uh, for a long time. But they also did it, I figured out after a little at church, social activity. Like when we got together and we had potlucks at church, what did they like to talk about? They all like to talk about their garden. How's your tomato plants doing? How's your watermelon doing? How's this doing? How's that doing? And so we're there that first spring, and everybody's talking about the garden, and we're like, we, we've never grown anything. We don't know anything about gardens. But we said, everyone seems to be interested in it, so maybe we should do it with them. So we said, we're going to grow a garden. So it's second spring. I had a guy... Uh, Steve Wright came over and he brought, plowed us up a mini tractor over and he plowed me up a spot in my backyard. We had a big, long backyard, 
plowed us up a spot, and we went to Bunton Seed Company. Everybody said, you got to go drive over to Louisville, make a day of it, go to Bunton Seed Company, oldest seed company in the state, pick out your seeds, pick out your plants, it's the best. So we drove over, we got all this stuff. We didn't know what we were buying. We'll take one of these and one of these and one of these. We didn't know how big they would grow, how fast they would grow, what they would grow. We knew nothing. We are just loading up on all this stuff. So we take it back and we put it all on the ground. And you can see some of our little baby plants in there. I said, but I, I, uh, this was about the best picture I could find. Never grown anything in my life. And I said, but I, I kind of like zucchini and I kind of like squash. So we're going to grow zucchini and we're going to grow squash. And I don't know how big those plants get. They're really small when you buy them at the, at the seed company. Like they're tiny. They come in a little pot about this big and they just look so cute. And so we start, you know, we got like a 25 by 25 spread like it seemed like a whole acre to us and we're like well where do we put everything so zucchini should probably go on the front left so I just start cramming them in there putting them in the ground one after rained and that summer we had record rainfall in Kentucky it rained and it rained and it rained and my plants went crazy this was like just early spring things are growing everywhere and you can see up in the front left I got some zucchini plants some squash plants you can see on that picture on the right, I got a watermelon vine down the front, and I got some lettuce. Look, by the end of the summer, the zucchini had totally taken over the whole garden. It was just one giant zucchini garden. And you've seen Forrest Gump with, like, the shrimp, and we got boiled shrimp. And we had boiled zucchini and fried zucchini and zucchini bread and zucchini pancakes and every kind of zucchini. I mean, we had zucchini you can't believe. And it just started with a little tiny plant, and it turned into something huge. Now, I'm no farmer, and I'm no garden expert. When I read this parable, and Jesus talks about a mustard seed, that's what I think about. Think about, that was something very small that turned into something just overpowering. And Jesus says, what makes sense to you? How can I describe the kingdom of God to you? How can I make it make sense to you? Well, it's kind of like a mustard seed, and it's really little, and you put it in the ground, and it turns into this big, giant plant. And in the parallel parable, he says, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of leaven. It doesn't take a lot. You just take a little bit of leaven, and you put it in this big batch of flour. You let it do its work, and it spreads all the way through through the gospel. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And on first glance, when you're reading through the Gospels, this is not a story or a passage or a couple of verses that arrest your attention. Like, you're looking for action. Where's the, where's the, the demons getting cast into the pigs and running off? Or where's Jesus saying, you know, really, really important things about he came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. Let's get to the good stuff. And this is kind of like flyover country in the Gospels. You just read it and you say, eh, okay, nice. But if you really stop and in a couple of weeks, think about what Jesus is saying about his kingdom. And I did this sermon preparation a couple of weeks ago. And I got done reading and studying and thinking and outlining. And I thought, this parable to me is maybe the most encouraging parable of all that Jesus told. And I joked with you that Ron took the one that I really wanted. And as I studied for this one a few weeks ago, I thought, man, I'm glad nobody picked this one. And I'm glad I got to spend time thinking about what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's like a little. going to ask two And they turn into big, impressive, impactful things. And so we're just going to ask two questions. What do I need to understand about the kingdom and how do I apply these truths? So here we go. 
What do I need to understand about the kingdom of God? Number one, the kingdom of God begins small. Begins small. Mustard seeds are small. Now, I'm going to just maybe break your bubble a little bit and tell you they are not the smallest seed. And they grow into pretty good-sized plants, but the seeds and mustard grow into trees. And so when you read that and you know a little bit about seeds and mustard plants, you think, what, what is Jesus trying to say here? And the best way I can explain it to you is to say this is sort of like an idiomatic, a, a proverbial saying in Jesus' culture. And sometimes idioms and proverbial sayings you miss when you go from culture to culture. For example, if I were to say to you, hey, we had a visitor in my Sunday school class this morning. He was super nice, but man, he was quiet as a mouse. Am I trying? No, they're not. That mice are the quietest creature on earth. If you've had a mouse in your house, you know they're not quiet. They tap and they chew and they scratch and they make all kinds of racket. That's just a saying, right? That's something we say. And you understand exactly what I mean. The idea of a mustard seed was the same sort of proverbial saying in Jesus' day. He's not trying to say it's the tiniest seed by diameter, and if you get your little measurement tools out, there's nothing smaller than a mustard seed. Jesus is not confused about botany. He knows all about seeds. People would have said He's just talking to people in their language, in their culture. And people would have said, oh, that's as small as a mustard seed. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what the kingdom of God's like. A mustard seed. Something small, something that seems insignificant. But you plant it, and it grows into something that's pretty impressive. Jesus is saying his kingdom starts small. That's true throughout the Bible, right? When God wanted to to start a people in the Old Testament, who did he start with? The biggest nation on earth? The most powerful nation on earth, he picks a, an aged, barren woman and her husband. And he says, I'm going to start with that. And he says, from you are going to come so many descendants, be more than the stars in the sky. But I'm going to start really small. Brother, no. When you get to David, does God pick the oldest, biggest, strongest brother? No. Does he pick the second? Oldest, biggest, strongest brother? No. You whittle all the way down the list and he says, I'll take the runt, the little guy. And that's the guy that I'm going to use. When you get to Jesus, and Jesus is born. Is he born in a palace with a lot of fanfare and a parade and all the officials come out and bow down before him? No. He's born in a backwater town in the middle of the night and nobody knows it, knows about it except some shepherds, guys from out of country. And he says, I'm just going to start small. And with the disciples, Jesus at times had thousands of people flocking around him. And it's almost like he pushed those people away at times. His plan wasn't all these masses of people. His plan was the disciples. He left it in their hands. And they were just a bunch of nobodies. When you get to the book of Acts, the somebodies are amazed that the nobodies such an incredible movement and the only explanation they have is well they've been with Jesus so I'm going to start small you may be here this morning and you may say I'm the only Christian in my family 
No one else follows Jesus in my family. Or you may say, I work in a place where there are no believers. It's rough. You don't understand. It is rough, rough. Or you may say, I go to school at a place that's rough. I'm all alone. And my classmates are just a bunch of bozos. And I feel like I'm all alone. And all I can say to you is, I understand that can be discouraging. But you've got to understand, God uses mustard seeds. Small things that don't seem like they could have any impact, don't seem like they could turn the world upside down, but the kingdom of God starts small. And that's how God likes to work. What do I need to know about the kingdom? Number two, the kingdom of God is often unseen. Quote, hid. I think this is the point when Jesus says the woman hid, quote unquote, hid the leaven in the flour. That's not the normal word you would use for leavening flour. And Jesus is making a point. She hid it in there. It's a little bit of leaven in this massive pile of flour, and she hides it in there, and you can't see it once it's in there. Once it's in, you can't pull it out. You can't sort it out. It's in there. It's invisible almost. It's unseen. It just blends in. You don't see anything happening, but something is happening. And you just work this is, and you let it do its work, even though you can't see it. The best biblical example I could think of this is the story of Ruth. You remember the story of Ruth in the Old Testament? Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. If you know anything about biblical history, you know that the time of the judges was bad. Really, really bad. If you're reading the book of Judges looking for a hero, you're not going to find one. They're all wicked, losers, immoral. They fall short. They don't trust God. They lack faith. They're coward. All of it. They rebel against God's clear commands. It's really a bad time. It looks like all of Israel has gone to hell in a handbasket. And then you turn from the last page of Judges to the first page of Ruth, and it says, in the days of the Judges, this is what God was doing. He was working through a mustard seed of a widow and her daughter-in-law who didn't even live in Israel. They lived in Moab. No one foreign that going on. Nobody knew what God was doing there. It wasn't even in Israel. It was in a foreign country, a pagan country. And God says, I'm going to take this mustard seed, not only a mustard seed, but it's a mustard seed that nobody knows about, that nobody can see. And this is how I'm going to work. No one knew that through this widow and her daughter-in-law that God was working to bring about the line of King David that would eventually bring about the line of Jesus. It was all unseen, but God was working. Control of A more modern-day example. Think about China, 1949. Mao took control of China, kicked out all the missionaries. There was hundreds, thousands of missionaries from all over the world in China preaching and teaching and leading churches and serving the poor and doing all sorts of things. Just overnight, you got to go. They all had to leave. And everyone said when that happened, well, that's it for the church in China. All the missionaries are gone. They all had to go home. You fast forward a couple of decades, they sort of ease the doors open and people go to China and they say, there's churches here. There's Christians here. They're all over the place. When we left, there were in the hundreds of thousands. When we come back, they're in the tens of millions. Nobody saw it happening. It didn't happen with a lot of fanfare. It happened underground. It happened quietly. It happened in house churches one after another. It was all unseen. 
but the kingdom was growing. And that's what Jesus is saying here. In your family, family, you may say, nothing good is happening spiritually in my family. Nothing. Or you may say, I go to work and I share with people and I try to be an example to people and I try to witness to people and it's like nothing. You can't see any progress. Or with my classmates, nothing's happening. Well, sometimes the kingdom grows and you don't see it. Sometimes God's at work and you don't see it written in neon signs or written up in the clouds in the sky. The kingdom is often unseen. Three, the kingdom of God grows slowly. The mustard seed doesn't turn into a bush overnight. And the leaven doesn't work through the flour in five minutes. They both take time. And Jesus is saying the kingdom is like that. It's not just this big sudden burst and there it is, but it grows and it grows slowly. Part of me hates to say this, but I, I think it's undeniably true. Americans to hear. Revival is not the norm in church history. That's hard for Americans to hear. That's hard for some of you to hear who grew up going to revivals every year and all the time. You had revivals and I think, you know, we went to church and you had the speaker and you had the special music and you did all the thing during the week and the evening and just everybody sort of got hyped up and it was this big deal and people got saved. And I'm not denying that that hasn't happened, doesn't happen, won't happen. I'm just telling you, if you go back and you look even at major revivals in Europe or in the United States where just tons of people got saved in massive meetings and thousands and thousands of people become Christians. And you fast forward just a couple of years, in almost every instance it just disappears. It just goes away. And you say, what happened? There was X number of people living in this state back in the, the Great Awakening and this many hundreds of thousands got saved and normally happened. And then you fast forward and there's all these lost people. Well, what happened? Well, that's just not normally how the kingdom grows. It doesn't grow in big bursts. It just grows slowly, gradually. I hope that's encouraging to you when you think about ministry here in Odessa. And you say, man, I... I wish we were fuller, or I wish we had more services, or I wish we had more people, or I wish more people went to church somewhere else, or I wish this. I wish all those things too. Unless God just does something totally extraordinary, and he sort of breaks the mold, and he starts to work like he doesn't normally work, I think you just expect slow growth, just one person at a time. I hope you understand when we go on mission trips to places like Kenya that we're looking for the same thing. We're not looking to go and preach and have 8,000 people raise their hand and then we come back and you can pat us on the back for how many people got saved. That's not how the kingdom normally grows. At a time. Grow slowly, just one person at a time, one family at a time, one village at a time, one community at a time. Jesus says that's what the kingdom's like. It's like a seed and it's going to grow, but it doesn't grow overnight. It's not a magic beanstalk. And it's like leaven that you put in flour, and it's going to leaven the whole batch, but you've got to give it time. And he's saying the kingdom of God grows like that. So those are a few thoughts about the kingdom. How do we apply them? Let me give you four levels of application. Number one, just on a personal level, 
Personal sanctification is a battle. It's a battle. Sanctification is you becoming more holy or you becoming more Christ-like. Or if you wanted to define it in context of this parable, you could say sanctification is the kingdom of God taking root in your heart and growing and bearing fruit. That's sanctification. The rule and the reign of God having more and more and more and more influence over your And I know we, and I'm just telling you, it's a battle. It does not happen overnight. And I know we love the stories of, you know, old Joe was down drunk in the gutter, strung out on heroin and the worst kind of person, and he got saved, and now he's president of the Lions Club and chairman of the deacons and the greatest guy ever, and it just happened in a blink. And we say, what a great story of transformation. That's not how it usually works. It's usually a battle. And so in your life, you say, man, I've been a Christian and fill in the blank X number of years. And I'm still struggling with sin. And my flesh is still weak at times. And my daily devotions are pitiful at times. I can't even get motivated to read the Bible or to pray. And when I do, it's just dry and boring. And my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and hitting me on the top of the head. And what is wrong with me? Nothing. It's a battle. It doesn't happen overnight instantly. It doesn't happen quickly and easily. It's okay for you. And God changes his people little by little by little. Listen, it's okay for you to say, I'm a work in progress, as long as you're really making progress. God doesn't just sanctify us in an instant. He grows us gradually, and he grows us over time, and it's a fight. And so in your life, you should know, when the kingdom of God takes root in my life, there's going to be struggle. There's going to be conflict. The Apostle Paul experienced the exact same thing. I know what I ought to do, and I just can't seem to do it, and I know what to do, and I keep doing it. And he says, I just need to be delivered from this body of death. But until that comes, it's a fight, and it's a battle. And your growth in Christ-likeness, your becoming more and more like Jesus, is not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen with just the right sermon that I preach or the right Sunday school lesson that you hear, but it's just a process that happens gradually over time as we grow in sanctification. Second point of application. Raising kids, raising children requires endurance. Amen. Parents and grandparents, you have to fight discouragement. You've got to fight it. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but when you took home that little bundle of joy, they were not perfectly sweet and innocent. They were wretchedly depraved and wicked. Amen. <laughs> and when they steve up, I find myself saying this, these words all the time. I can't believe. Really? What can't you believe? They're sinners. They're not going to be sanctified any faster than you are or I am. They're not going to learn to follow Christ any quicker than we are. It's going to be a battle for them just like it was for us. And when you parent and you grandparent, you've got to play the long game. You can't get frustrated and give up. You can't get discouraged and say, and it's just a tough nut. Well, I've done that. I can't wash my hands. It's a fight. And it's just a long, hard slog. 
to see Christ formed in your kids and your grandkids. And you just keep plugging away at it, and you keep plugging away at it, and you keep reading Bible stories, and you keep talking about the gospel, and you keep dragging them to church, and you keep praying for them, and you keep doing it over and over and over and over again. Endurance. Number three, church growth is not dependent on revival. And I should have put that in quotes. Maybe you could add that in when you fill the blank in. It's not dependent on quote-unquote revival. I'm using the word revival there in two senses. I mean it in the literal sense of like revival. When you think we used to have revival back in the day, once a year, showed you a picture of North Benson Baptist Church. They just had it in their brains. In the fall, you have revival. Fall revival. Every year, you've got to have fall revival. You get the speaker. You get the music. You do the stuff every night, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, revival. We have revival. That's the key. That's the ticket. That's how we're going to get more people connected and plugged in. You have a revival. So I'm telling you that that, an event, something you put on the calendar and you schedule it, that's not the key. And then I also mean revival like in the quote sense, like just anything, any program, any event, any ministry, any trip, anything that you can think of that you say, if my church would just do this, then we would grow. People would come. I'm just telling you, spec works. It's not the way it works. Revivals, events, spectacles is not the way you grow the kingdom of God. It's not. Americans think it is. And we have always thought that it was. That's why you go back and you read about the Great Awakening, First Great Awakening, and the Second Great Awakening, all these quote-unquote big revivals. And you read about people doing the craziest things. Like I know there's some crazy charismatic and Pentecostal people that are laughing. You should just go back and read about some of our forefathers and the things that they did in revivals. People laughing in the aisles and barking like dogs and acting crazy and the weirdest stuff you've ever heard. And people back then said, man, this is where it's at. This is the key. You put the tent up and you have the meeting and you do all the stuff and it's the greatest. That's how the kingdom grows. Look, people got saved at those meetings. I don't deny that. I would never deny that. You just don't grow a church through spectacle. You can grow a crowd through spectacle, but a crowd is not a church. And the kingdom of God grows through the church. And the church grows slowly, gradually. And maybe God pours out His Spirit in a great way and you see an unusual number of salvations or baptisms. Absolutely God can do that. I'm just telling you the normal, how God has worked, what He normally works, and what Jesus is saying in this parable is, it's just not like there's a magic event and you do it and you put it on the calendar and then boom, you just take off and you grow. The kingdom is not dependent on Revival. One of my favorite books is of no relation to me is a guy named Robert Coleman. He's a Methodist guy. Methodists are right every now and then. And Robert Coleman has written a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And I made our elders and our staff read this a few months back. And he talks in the book, he says, maybe we should just go back and see how Jesus did evangelism. Like we come up with all these parties and games and this and that and all these revivals. How did Jesus do it? Maybe we should look there. And he goes back and he says, well, he had crowds, but that wasn't the strategy. He had masses of people, but that wasn't his plan. 
His plan was, I'm going to spend three years with 12 men. And then I'm gone, and it's theirs. Three years and 12 people. And he says this, talking about how the kingdom grows and how it spreads. He says it's going to be slow, tedious, painful, and probably unnoticed by people at first. But the end result will be glorious even if, can you handle this? We don't live to see it. That's what Jesus did, right? Three years, 12 guys, and I'm gone. Of course, he lived to see it, but he was gone. That was the plan. And in the book, he says, maybe we should implement that plan. Look, I can tell you, at our church, we try to plan some big events. We're going to have an event. Can I just be on ice cream? And we hope you'll come eat ice cream, and somebody's going to be the ice cream champion. Can I just be honest with you? I don't have any illusions that next Sunday there's going to be no seats in here because we had an ice cream social. Not going to happen. At the end of the month, we're going to have a pool party, Sherwood Pool. Can I tell you the only thing that's going to happen as a result of that? It's going to rain. (laughs) Three years in a row. Mark it down on the calendar. It's going to rain the night we have the pool party. That's it. I mean, it's not a magic bullet. It's not a secret program. It's not like some secret strategy where we're saying, we're going to do these big light the night or, you know, food truck night or whatever. That's not how the kingdom grows. We don't expect it to be an event-driven thing. You say, well, what's our strategy? I like the strategy of William Carey. He was a missionary in India, and this is what William Carey said. He said, I can plod. I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. So what unheard of, he's known as the father of modern missions. He leaves London. He moves to India. This was an unheard of thing when he did it. People did not do it. They thought he was crazy. He had people look him in the face and say, if God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without you. And William Carey said, I'm going. I'm leaving everything behind and I'm going to India. And he persevered there and he learned the language there and he translated the Bible and he started churches and hospitals and schools. His ministry was amazing. And towards the end of his life, somebody said, what's the secret to you? I just kept plus. What's the secret to your ministry? And this is what he said. I just kept plodding along. Same old thing. Over and over. Preach the Bible. Worship God. Make disciples. Repeat. Over and over and over again. That's the strategy. And I realize it's not as flashy as some churches or as exciting as some churches, but I'm just telling you, that's the plan here. We're going to meet together every Sunday. We're going to Read the word, talk about it. We're going to sing, we're going to work, we're going to have some pray together. And then next Sunday, we're going to do the exact same thing. And every Sunday morning, we're going to have Sunday school classes where you can meet together with people and build relationships and fellowship with them, study the Bible with them, pray together in a smaller group. And we're just going to do it every Sunday over and over and over. And on Wednesday nights when school's going, we're going to meet here for adult Bible study and the youth are going to have Bible study and the kids are going to learn Bible verses and we're going to do it every Wednesday night. Same thing, over and over and over. And you just plod along and that's how the kingdom grows. Last thought of I can plod. We can plod. Last thought of application is this. The gospel will have global impact. Will have global impact. Jesus says, it's like a grain of seed that a man took and he sowed in his garden, and it grew. It grew. 
and it became a tree. He says the kingdom of God is like leaven that she, this woman hid in three measures of flour, and it was all leavened, all of it. It did its job. And you and I don't have any illusions after 2,000 years of church history. We don't have any illusions that the church is going to take over the world. What we do believe is that the gospel is going to have global impact. And we read in the book of Revelation that on the last day there will be people before the throne praising God, worshiping God, glorifying God from every nation, every tribe, every language, the tree people group, every family. That's the picture of the end. The tree grows and the leaven spreads and the gospel will have global impact. Impact here in our city, impact in our country, and impact around the world. And you add all that together and I, I see two short stories, two short parables that are really easy to just jump over. But when you stop and you slow down and you think about what does it mean for missions and for our church and what does it mean for my family and what does it mean for me, I find great hope and great encouragement that no, the kingdom's not coming in a big burst, in an instant, in a moment, and in some sort of flashy display, but it's going to come. And the seed is going to grow and the leaven is going to spread and the kingdom will come. So with that hope, let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. And we stop to acknowledge this morning ways are higher than ours, that you know what is best and you know what is right, and that your plans for your people and your church and your kingdom are good plans. And Father, when we listen to Jesus describe how the kingdom grows and how it spreads and what it's like. Father, we pray that we would be able to untangle ourselves from a culture that is so confused about your kingdom, about life under your rule. And Father, that we would make to clearly and we would see how it applies to our lives and the changes that we need to make to the way we live, way we think, the way we feel, what we expect from you. And Father, we believe that your kingdom will come, that the gates of hell will not prevail, that every tribe, every, every tongue, every language will gather around the throne. And Father, this morning we want to add our voices to that group as we sing praises to you for who you are and for what you have done. Father, we love you planting and growing and promising this kingdom. Father, we love you. We pray that you would be honored as we worship together this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and